Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to another episode of Living with the Shuruh. This is going to be episode 6 discussing the book titled Shuruh Commentaries and Explanations of Sayyid Qutb's Milestones. My name is Khalid Mahmoud. I'm a proud member of the group The Proclaimers of the Truth, whose leader, Sheikh Mustafa Kamil Muhammad, is the author of this book. As we mentioned in previous episodes, we will discuss this book over a year's time, covering a chapter every month. This month we're talking about the chapter titled The Unique Quranic Generation, and this is part two of that chapter. Today we'll be discussing the factors that led to the excellence of the first generation. The first factor is of course the Holy Quran, and then we'll go on to talk about the second factor, which was the Sunnah, or the teachings, the sayings, and the actions of the Messenger of Allah The third factor is the phenomena of revelation and the presence of a single interpreter. And finally, the fourth factor is the novelty of the message itself and the distinctiveness of Islam. And finally, we will close off with a quick look at whether or not these factors are present in our lives. So let's get to it. So let's begin with the first factor, which is, of course, the Holy Quran. Now, it goes without saying that this book is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly from Him. That these are the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This book came directly from Allah. Every single verse was uttered by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We must feel the weight, the sanctity, the divineness of these words. This is a hint of the sensitivity that the companions treated the Qur'an with. They took the words of Allah with the reverence it deserves. Now if you look at the Qur'an and how it impacted and led to the excellence of the first generation, you will see that the Qur'an has a few main topics. The first one is describing the divinity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the uluhiyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now this word uluhiyah is not easily translated into any other language, but in the book, it's attempted to be translated as a concept that can be roughly described, quote, as the total belief in the absolute supremacy and greatness of Allah and His names, descriptions, and authority, with all their perfection, dignity, and mercy. End quote. So, uluhiyya is a concept that can be described as the total belief in the absolute supremacy and greatness of Allah and all His names and attributes. So, this is a very heavy term. I think going forward, I'm only going to use uluhiyya whenever I need to describe this, this concept. But this is going to be a very important piece going forward. I like to say that since the Qur'an is also known as Kitabullah or the Book of Allah, then the, its main premise is educating us about Allah and His uluhiyya. Just like how if you say this is a book of chemistry or a book of physics, of course, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the best of examples. But if you say this is a book of chemistry or this is a book of physics or a book of history, then you immediately understand that the topic the book is going to discuss is either chemistry or physics or history and so on. So if you say the Quran is the book of Allah, then it is the book that describes and educates us mere mortals about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
and his uluhiyah. Every verse in the Quran, if you look at it, discusses this uluhiyah in a unique manner. Every verse in the Quran discusses the uluhiyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is one of the main topics of the Quran. You'll see how the Quran presents the uluhiyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in so many different ways. You'll see it presents it when describing the creation of the universe, creation of the different elements of the universe, the earth, the heavens, animals, plants, you know, physics, everything. Uh, when it's talking about the creation of the universe, you'll see how the impact of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his divinity, his supremacy, his greatness, his uluhiyyah is described. You'll see it when the Quran talks about Allah's absolute authority in running the universe that he created and his omniscience, his awareness regarding every single occurrence. Again, you'll see it when the Quran describes the discussion between the messengers and their respective people because this was the discussion regarding the uluhiyyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You'll again see it when the Quran describes the hereafter in the context of uluhiyyah, when it describes how all creatures will one day stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and receive judgment. And then expanding upon that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala records all our actions, sees everything we do, hears everything we say, and records it and holds it into account. And then when we come to the day of judgment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just and treats us with complete justice because that is one of his attributes. So even when describing the hereafter, the underlying message is educating us about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, making us know who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala really is, as far as our mere human minds can comprehend, of course. So the Sahaba, the companions of the Rasul, by living with the Quran, were completely immersed in the uluhiyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They were able to extract what was you know important from these and the concepts that they could then live with. They knew how near to them Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was, how he was their support and their master in their times of need. They knew that he was the only one who could provide sustenance, who could punish them, who gives and takes life, and who judges them all in the very end. And because by living their whole lives, revolving around Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, around his uluhiyah, his divinity, his supremacy, his greatness, by living their whole lives and forming it revolving around Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're illuminated by his light. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah An-Nur, A'udhu Billahi Minash Rajeem, Allahu Nuru Samawatu Al-Ard. Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth. This is what the Sahaba understood by ensuring that their lives revolved around Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they were illuminated by his light, the light of the heavens and the earth. Now the second topic that the Quran addresses is the day of judgment, which is again firmly connected with the uluhiyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because if there was no day of judgment, like we just said, then Allah would have created us for no reason. Because clearly, why are we here on earth? If there is no accounting to be had, then there's no point. Because if there was no accounting, there was no keeping records of all the events that occur in our lives throughout history, then the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is an all-knowing, all-seeing, omniscient Lord would be meaningless. This is further clarified by the verse in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَفَحَسِبْتُمْ أَنَّمَا خَلَقْنَاكُمْ عَبَثًا وَأَنَّكُمْ إِلَيْنَا لَا تُرْجَعُونَ فَتَعَالَ اللَّهُ الْمِلِكُ الْحَقِّ لَا إِلَهِ إِلَّا هُوَ رَبُّ الْعَشِ الْكَرِيمِ صدق الله العظيم In English Did you really think that we created you for mere autoplay and you would not be brought back to us 
exalted from that be Allah, the King, the truth. There is no deity but Him, the Lord of the throne of honor. End quote. The companions lived with this. They lived constantly with Allah. They knew they were being tracked and monitored and were being held accountable for all their actions. So they were constantly aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's omniscience over their lives. But at the same time, they were encouraged to pursue life and enjoy its pleasures. Just because you're being overseen doesn't mean that you can't enjoy life. Rasulullah when he was asked about the impossibility of sustained spirituality, of being constantly 100% of your day connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not think about anything else but Him and, and the hereafter and judgment and so on. The Sahaba realized that they couldn't do this because whenever they went home to their wives, to their children, whenever they were in the markets and dealing and trading, they weren't thinking about those things. So they came to the Messenger وسلم, and he said to them, quote, if your state of mind would remain the same as it is in my presence, and you are always busy in the remembrance of Allah, then the angels would have been shaking hands with you in your beds and in your paths. But, O Hanzala, who is the companion who asked the question, time should be devoted to the worldly affairs, and time should be devoted to prayer and meditation. End quote. Now, what are the consequences of believing in the Day of Judgment? We've touched a little bit about on it earlier, but let's expand a little bit more. For indeed, the belief in the Day of Judgment is something a Muslim cannot live without because it gives life seriousness and meaning and keeps the Muslim honest. It is what gives us value when we know we are here on earth for a reason and that our experiences here, both good and bad, are being recorded and noticed. It is what allows us to endure the hardship of this life, to tolerate its misery and resist temptation. For when we believe we will be compensated for what we held back from because of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and when we believe that what we never gained because of misfortune, because of it wasn't our lot in this life, when we know that all this will be compensated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it allows us to endure the hardship of this life. I will quote from the book where the author says, quote, Certainly, the belief in the day of judgment and afterlife is one of the things that helps us face all problems and ill desires. It helps the person to live with beautiful feelings when he closes his eyes and starts imagining the life to come in paradise with the messengers and companions. The person will not truly know these treasures and rewards until he is really there. Whenever he remembers that houses in paradise are built with bricks of gold and silver, he realizes the worthlessness of seeking wealth in this world. Whenever he remembers that he is going to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, be in his hospitality, and talk to him directly, this makes the whole earth mean nothing to him with all its troubles, stress, torture, and vain desires. There is no doubt that the companions were living with such feelings. End quote. No one can only imagine what impact being so certain that you are going to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you're going to communicate with Him directly face to face, would have as we walk this earth. One can only imagine. 
The last piece in this part about believing in the Day of Judgment and its impact is how much it promoted mercy and solidarity throughout Islamic history. This is because when you think about it, when a person is told, if you give of your wealth to the poor, Allah will reward you. When a Muslim is told, if you put this effort towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward you multiples of it in the hereafter, whether it's of your energy, of your money, of your time, of your knowledge, wherever you, whatever you can give. When a person is told they can do this, when well-provided people, whether it's wealth, intelligence, power, strength, abilities, whatever it is, when they believe they will be compensated in the hereafter for their generosity, they are much more willing to give of what they have and to constantly seek opportunities to give because they know they will be rewarded greatly. This led to the amazing sense of solidarity and union within members of the Islamic civilization throughout history because they were always looking for opportunities to give whatever it is they could give, whatever wherever they can help support because they know they are being compensated in the hereafter. Now moving on to the third topic that the Quran discusses, which is man himself and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors him. Of course, we're talking about man in the general sense, so, so both male and female, but how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors mankind. There are many examples. The first, of course, is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly addresses mankind in the Quran. There are innumerable verses that begin with Ya Yuhannas, Ya Yuhalladinamunu, and so on. We're speaking to people directly, speaking to mankind. Who are we? You know, if you think about the immensity of this universe, how big the universe itself is, and then you compare that to the size of our galaxy, and then our solar system, and then our little planet, and then us individuals, me and you sitting where we are, or standing, or walking, whatever we're doing, a speck in the grand scheme of things, very short-lived, 60, 70, 80 years, 90 years if we're blessed. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes the time to talk to us directly, to address us specifically, and say, Yibna Adam, Ya Yuhannas, Ya Yuhaladina This is huge. This is being honored and dignified above all creation. Allah constantly reminds us about this. In the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمَ وَحَمَلْنَاهُمْ فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحْرِ وَرَزَقْنَاهُمْ مِّنَ الطَّيِّبَاتِ وَفَضَّلْنَاهُمْ عَلَى كَثِيرٍ مِّمَّنْ خَلَقْنَا تَفْضِيلًا In English, And we have certainly honored the children of Adam and carried them on the land and sea and provided for them of the good things and preferred them over much of what we have created. Greatly. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling us that He's honored us above all of His creation. Another example is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells His angels that He wants to create man. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the angels, And mention when your Lord told the angels, I will place on earth a representative. So man was going to become a representative of Allah on earth. And then when Allah created mankind, He commanded the angels to prostrate. Allah says in the Quran, Adonis Rajim, وَإِذْ قُلْنَا لِلْمَلَائِكَ تِسْجُدُوا لِآدَمَ فَسَجَدُوا 
And mention when we said to the angels, prostrate to Adam, and they prostrated. So, this is how elevated man is in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where the angels themselves prostrated for him, where he is the representative of Allah on earth. This is huge. And then you also see another part of the honoring of mankind is that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informs us of how much he loves us, of his happiness when we return to him, when we achieve our greatest potential, when we become true servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala becomes extremely happy with us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, in English, O you who have believed, whoever of you should revert from his religion, Allah will bring forth in place of them a people he will love and who will love him. And then the fourth topic that the Quran addresses are morals and its connection with faith. Now, I think we need to understand, first of all, that Islam as a construct wants to address everything in our lives. It wants to take everything into account. Islam does not see a distinction between our actions and the motivations behind them. Islam does not separate the morals and ethics from relations, from finances, from economy, from politics, and so on and so forth. Islam wants us to be on our best behaviors at all times. You'll see in the Quran, the Quran addresses good behaviors and bad behaviors. It doesn't neglect them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ This is describing the Prophet ﷺ, where he says, And you stand on an exalted standard. And then the Rasul ﷺ, there's a hadith where he says, إِنَّمَا بُعِثْتُ لِيُتَمِّمَ مَكَارِمَ الْأَخْلَاقِ and I have been sent to establish ethics upon the utmost of standards. So good ethics, good morals, best behaviors are heavily promoted by the Qur'an. You'll see the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَفَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي يُكَذِّبُ بِالدِّينِ فَذَلِكَ الَّذِي يَدُعُ الْيَتِيمِ وَلَا يُحُطُّ عَلَىٰ طَعَامِ الْمِسْكِينِ In English, do you see the one who denies the judgment? For he is the one who harshly repulses the orphan and does not encourage the feeding of the poor. The Quran describes bad behaviors and says these are not the behaviors of people who believe in the Day of Judgment. And so therefore promoting the opposite of these, promoting taking care of the orphans and feeding the poor and encouraging to feed the poor. So these are some of the main topics that the Quran addresses and that led to the excellence of the first generation. We'll move on to the second factor, which is the sunnah, or the teachings, the sayings, and the actions of the Messenger of Allah Now, let's begin with first describing what the duty of the Messenger of Allah was. The duty of the Messenger of Allah was clarifying the message with his sayings and with his actions. That was his duty. He brought to us a book, a message, the Qur'an, but then he also exemplified what the Qur'an was asking us to do by his actions and his sayings either by explaining some parts of the Qur'an or acting out what the Qur'an wants us to do so that we know and can see what it means to apply the Qur'an in our lives. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الذِّكْرَ لِتُبَيِّنَ لِلنَّاسِ مَا نُزِّلَ إِلَيْهِمْ In English, And we have revealed to you the reminder that you may make clear to people what has been revealed to them. 
We can only imagine how impactful being in the presence of the messenger must have been for the companions. I will quote a section from the book by the author where he says, quote, The presence of the messenger of Allah had a significant impact as it was greater than anything in this world. It was the impact of the messengerhood, the light of Allah and the source of absolute truth. There is no doubt that the Messenger of Allah actively represented and transferred Islam into real life. He represented the peak of all humanity and the peak of mankind in every aspect. Anyone who lives with him through the tradition he has left behind or reads his biography will be able to find in him a good example for himself regardless of the reader's position, profession, background, or frame of mind. This is a divine miracle that Allah created Messenger Muhammad to become an effective example for everyone in every aspect, time, and age. The presence of the Messenger of Allah among the companions had no doubt an enormous impact on them and had moved them in every possible aspect. It was a spiritual power from Allah and from the light of Allah. That was such a force that shaped the companions into that magnificent level. Whenever we read their history, their attitudes, and their feelings, we realize our inability to comprehend how this had happened. The third factor that led to the excellence of the first generation is the phenomenon of revelation and the presence of one single interpreter. Now let's break it into two pieces and talk first about the phenomenon of revelation. This, as we've mentioned many times before, is the idea of the concept of how having a live connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where new verses were being revealed daily, bringing them news from the sky, guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, having the daily anticipation that a new verse will come out today and explain and clarify things. That was clearly a factor that led to the excellence of the first generation, having live, fresh verses with immediate impact in their lives, where they know this verse was revealed because of that incident. That is a very unique thing to them. We don't have that. The other part of this factor is the concept of the presence of one single interpreter. This is indeed a very unique factor to their time. The messenger Muhammad was the only one allowed to interpret the Quran. He was the sole interpreter, the sole source of clarification for anything that was expounded by the Quran. He was the only person they could go back to for all complications, all problems, all issues, all disagreements. Anything that needed ruling or, or judging, they went to him. And then when he decreed something, it was considered sacred. There was no room for counter-arguments. There was no room for hesitations or doubts. There was no second-guessing the Messenger wasallam. Now this is based on Many verses in the Quran. I will mention three of them. The first one is Abdul Sarjim. وَمَا أَتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوهُ وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in English, And whatever the Messenger has given you, take it. And whatever he has forbidden you, refrain from. The second verse, and this is describing the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, وَمَا يَنْدِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَى In English, and he does not speak from his own desire. The third verse is, 
In English, whoever obeys the messenger has obeyed Allah. So this was always very clear to the companions that their only acceptable source of judgment, adjudication, interpretation was the Messenger as commanded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But then also the benefit from of this was there was no sense of unease over rulings because there were no doubts. Ever since that time, ever since the death of the Prophet whenever an issue arose, the practice was that the different scholars would contemplate, discuss, try to support their reasoning and their arguments and provide proof of their assumptions. The onus was on the scholars. But then, they were still humans with all of the liability of being human. So ever since the death of the Prophet anything new, anything that needed description, outlining, interpretation, any disagreements that needed adjudication, unless there was an exact example from the time of the Prophet the scholars had to extrapolate. And being human, they were liable to make mistakes. So there was always a sense of unease over the rulings. But in the time of the Messenger, during the time of the Sahaba, there was only one interpreter, there was only one adjudicator, there was only one judge. There was only one person who could say something, and whenever he says it, that was it. Whatever the Messenger gave you, take it. So that was the third factor. Now the fourth factor is the novelty of the message and the distinctiveness of Islam. Now this is self-explanatory. Islam was being revealed for the first time. It didn't exist before then. And then it was being revealed to people who were completely ignorant of all former scriptures. Islam did not come to people who already had a holy book. The Arabs of that time did not have a holy book. They did not have previous messengers whose books they carried with them. There was Judaism. There was Christianity. But they were very isolated in their own communities. They weren't part of the big Arabic tribal landscape. So Islam, when it was being revealed, was being revealed to a people who were completely ignorant of all former scriptures. And then, if you took a broad view of humanity at the time, with different civilizations, different races, different nations across the globe, you would be very hard-pressed to find a society as dysfunctional, as broken down as the society of the Arabs of the time. And this is not just our judgment. They said it themselves. And this is also the opinion of their neighboring civilizations, such as the Persians and the Romans and the Egyptians and so on. So for them, the gap between where their society was and the goal that Islam is trying to elevate them to was so vast and completely undeniable. Their transition from disbelief to Islam was so stark, so jarring, that they could not help but change completely once they enter Islam. Allah says in the Quran, لَقَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ بَعَثَ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِّنْ أَنفُسِهِمْ يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ وَإِنْ كَانُوا مِنْ قَبْلُ لَفِي ضَلَالٍ مُبِينٍ In English, Allah did confer a great favor on the believers when he sent among them a messenger from themselves, reciting to them his verses and purifying them and teaching them the book and wisdom. Where before that, 
they had been in manifest error. So those are the four factors that led to the excellence of the first generation. The first factor was the Holy Quran. The second factor was the Sunnah, i.e. the teachings, sayings, and actions of the Messenger of Allah. The third factor was a combination of the phenomena of revelation, the immediacy and the life connection with the heavens, and the presence of the one single interpreter in the person of the Messenger Wasallam. And then the fourth factor was the novelty of the message and the distinctiveness of Islam. We will close this episode with a quick look whether these factors are present in our lives or not. And to be honest, almost all of these factors are present in some form in our modern times. First, we still have the Qur'an. We have the entire Qur'an. And although it's true that we don't have a live connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like the companions did, we still have more of the Qur'an at hand than the companions did at any time in the life of the Messenger, except possibly at the very end of it. So it's, although it's true we don't have a live connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we have the entire Qur'an at hand. The second factor is we do have the sunnah of the Messenger وسلم, his teachings, his sayings and actions, all written down and compiled for our benefit by very dedicated men throughout history who spent lifetimes trying to purify the teachings and the sayings and the history of the Messenger وسلم, from all impurities, from all the additions of later people. So we have that as well. So we have the Qur'an, number one. We have the sunnah, number two. Number three, which was the novelty of the message and the distinctiveness of Islam, we have that as well. Islam today is just as strange as it was the day it was revealed. The entire world is immersed in jahiliyyah. We've discussed in previous episodes the amount of misery, the amount of suffering, the amount of injustices, and the complete separation of Islam from all world affairs. Today, Islam is just as novel and the situation of the world is as far, if not even farther, from where Islam wants it to be as it was back then. The gap between where the world is and where Islam wants us to be is as large as it was back then. So if you quickly look at the four factors we talked about, the Quran, the Sunnah, the novelty of Islam, the factor that is missing that we haven't talked about is the presence of the Messenger of Allah as we mentioned, being the sole interpreter and the adjudicator. But the question we must ask ourselves is, was that factor the main reason for the difference between the first generation and all subsequent generations, and in particular, our modern times? Is the presence of the Messenger of Allah absolutely necessary to achieve the excellence that the first generation did? We will discuss that question in next week's podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with the Shuruh, where we discuss on a weekly basis the book titled Shuruh, Commentaries and Explanations of Sayyid Qutb's Milestones. All praise is to Allah, and any errors are mine and mine alone. My name is Khalid Mahmoud, spelled as K-H-A-L-I-D as in David, Mahmoud, M-O-H-A-M-O-O-D. 
You may reach me on Twitter or Facebook at that name or email me at khalid.mohamood at gmail.com. Until next time, Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.